That's great to see you all tonight. Uh, my name is Bill. Hi, Bill. Great to see Lance and Emily here and uh, James Trollet. And uh, anybody else visiting tonight? There's Andra. Andra. Great. Good to see you all. Welcome. Way to represent your class. <laughs> so we are continuing tonight this series uh, called Jesus Discovered, and uh, we've been doing this through the fall, uh, in which we're looking at different aspects of Jesus, uh, who he is. We've looked at Jesus as a teacher. We've looked at Jesus as a friend, um, as a judge, uh, as the promised Messiah. And tonight we're going to consider Jesus as servant. And to do that, we're going to jump into a text in the New Testament, and that's from the Gospel of John in chapter 13. And while we're getting that up on the screen, um, there we go. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 17, uh, and we're going to look at that tonight as we think about Jesus as a servant. Now, before the feast of the Passover, and, and this, the Passover, of course, is the Jewish feast in which they commemorate uh, the Jewish people, the deliverance, their deliverance uh, out of enslavement in Egypt. And so it's before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around the waist, his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Lord God, how can anyone imagine to preach your word? And yet I pray that in these moments your uh, truth, your light, your life would come through my words and speak to our hearts. 
for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we consider this text, uh, we, we want to think about, uh, you can go to this slide, yeah, we want to think about the disciples' ambition, we want to think about Jesus' humility, and then we want to think about our own hearts and hands. Uh, the disciples' ambition, you know, during his earthly ministry, Jesus called uh, 12 people to himself, uh, disciples. And uh, they were a mixed crew in a lot of different ways. Um, even as they grew in their understanding of who Jesus was, they had different expectations of why he had come, what he was going to do, and different expectations of what that meant for them. And so increasingly, they came to believe that he was, and we talked about this several weeks ago, that he was the, the Messiah, the promised one sent from God, and that what this meant is that he had come to establish a kingdom. And that idea stirred in them ambition. They imagined that, well, if Jesus is a king, and if he's going to be enthroned as a king, uh, then by association, by close association, were his closest uh, uh, followers that they themselves might be given prominent roles in his kingdom. And that uh, aspiration, that ambition led to, uh, with some frequency, uh, a spirit of rivalry among them. Ryan alluded to this in the text that he referred to. Uh, the Gospel writers recount numerous instances where the disciples got into arguments with one another and fought among themselves about who was the greatest. And uh, in, the, in these instances, their, their raw ambition to be put into positions of power and of honor in the kingdom were exposed and laid bare. So for example, I've uh, just referenced very briefly here in the Gospel of Mark, um, Mark and Matthew both describe an incident where they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And then on another occasion, and you can read about this in Mark and also in, in, in uh, Matthew, James and John's mother uh, also got involved and uh, tried to, to, to leverage Jesus to get uh, James and John into positions of prominence, seated at Jesus' right and his left hand. Um, in, in the kingdom. And, and then when all the others hear about this, uh, the text says they became angry and indignant with James and John for their, for their presumption and for their hubris. And then uh, during this same evening, this same meal that uh, was just described in, uh, that we just read in John chapter 13, Luke records that during that meal, while they're seated at the table uh, at the Last Supper, uh, they were once again arguing about which of them was the greatest. And uh, commentators speculate, because later in the meal, Peter you know, sort of wants to send a message to John to ask, have John ask Jesus something. And, and many speculate that maybe what they were arguing about is where they were seated at the table and how close they were, how far they were from, from, from Jesus. You know, the disciples did not, and we do not want the lower place, right? Uh, we were with two of uh, 
our, our grandkids over fall break. We had a wonderful time, and they're wonderful kids. Um, but we had to negotiate multiple fights with with them uh, that broke out at, at dinner time over who got to sit next to Grandma and Grandma. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a little bit gratifying to be the grandfather, <laughs> Grandma. But you know, they're they're fighting. I, no, I want to sit. I want to sit. And um, you know, we we might smile at that as you know, that's kids, that's childish, but and I'm not really so different. And I imagine maybe you aren't either. That we're we're still we're always drawn right to places of honor or prestige or of prominence or of power or of prosperity, and and none of us is immune to that. And you know so well, places like Princeton foster and fuel that and cater to that in, in our hearts. Uh, we, are, we are ambitious. And in whatever kingdom you, know, you imagine yourself living in, we long in that kingdom, in that realm, we long to be the greatest. Which is why Jesus' example in John 13 is so uh, very, very challenging. It's not just a sweet little story. I mean, this really challenges us, I think, in core, core ways. Um, and so let's look at the text and look at what we learn there about Jesus' humility, both in terms of who he is, in terms of what he did, and, and also in terms of why he did it. I mean, we think, first of all, uh, about what John tells us here about who Jesus is. Um, I think this is very significant in the opening verses. He says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. It says that Jesus knew that the Father had, had given all things into his hands. He knew that he had come from God he knew that he was going back to God. He had been, you know, that, that phrase, he had been given all things. Uh, or the God had, uh, uh, verse uh, 3, the Father had given all things into his hands. These are uh, extraordinary statements about Jesus, both in terms of his knowledge, his self-knowledge, his unique relationship to God as Father, Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew he was sent into the world by God. He knew that his hour, the reason he had come into the world, was at hand. Jesus is not an ordinary person, in other words, in, in this moment. All of this descriptive language that John wants us to, to, to see is speaking of his exalted status and nature, that he is the unique son of God. He is worthy of glory. He is worthy of worship. He's worthy of, of honor. And, and even within the limited self, uh, you know, the limited understanding that the disciples had, and, and maybe even within your limited understanding and thinking about who Jesus is, I mean, they believe, well, well he's worthy of respect. He's our teacher. He's worthy of, of honor that they believed as somebody, as a prophet, as someone sent from God, all of which makes his actions 
and during this supper all the more re remarkable. I mean, consider what what he did, knowing, as we as we said, knowing who he was, knowing why he had come, knowing what was about to happen to him, knowing even that the the, the one who was going to betray him is there at the dinner party, seated at the table. The text says that during the supper, he deliberately got up from the table. He stripped off his outer clothes, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And I, I was thinking about that because I would feel very, very uncomfortable, and I imagine you would too, very self-conscious, very vulnerable if you had to do that at a dinner party, right? Um, Jesus does that. And, I, I mean, it was interesting, as I, I, I think we went by it already, which is okay, but as I was looking for images of this online, the vast majority of them, he's still got quite a bit of clothing on. And I think people are just even uncomfortable, you know, showing an image. This is the only one I could find, you know, that sort of represented him uh, without a shirt on. I don't know how, you know, what, what he did have on, but it, it's just very uncomfortable, right? And, and then it says he begins to wash the feet. Which means what? It means he got down on his knees. He got down on the floor. And, and he's not only washing their feet, but he's using the towel that is, that is wrapped around him to, to, to wipe them and, and, to, and to dry them. And so in a, in a remarkable way, Jesus, the, the, the exalted one, the unique one lowers himself in a, in a very profound, in a very tangible, a very real way. Washing someone else's feet, I, I think we all recognize, was a very menial task. And it was a task, you know, as with so many of these kinds of things that had cultural and social significance, it was something that only a servant would do. Uh, never someone of higher status would do something like this for someone who was uh, of, of a lower status. It would have been considered uh, demeaning and inappropriate. It would have been a socially inappropriate thing to do. And so, you know, when we get to, I think it's the next slide, verses 6 through 11, and, and you see that Peter, how he reacts against this, he is he's indignant. He's, he's, he's perhaps embarrassed. His initial, Lord, what are you doing? This, I'm uncomfortable with what you're doing. This is awkward. This isn't right. And then he becomes even more indignant. Uh, he says, no, you may not do this. You will never wash my feet. This is wrong. So we see the, the extent to which Jesus as engages in an act of service that is completely uh, counter-cultural, counter-human nature, counter-human ambition. It's sort of turning categories upside down. Which leads to the, to the question then, well, why did he do this? And the text gives us two reasons that he did this. Uh, we, we see the first here in, the, in this the verses that are, that are on the screen. In the first place, he does this because he does it to foreshadow, and he's already been telling them, 
multiple times what's going to happen. Uh, and they're, they're sort of getting it, but they don't get it. And, and he does this to foreshadow and to explain something far surpassing washing their feet, which he's, he's about to do. His hour had come. What is that hour? The, the hour uh, of his death on the cross, where he's going to perform an act of humble service that is even more scandalous. And that is he's going to die an ignominious, brutal death on a Roman cross. And, and it's clear that when he answers Peter and he says, well, you don't get it, Peter. You don't get it yet. But afterward, you will understand. It's clear that he, he wants them to see his washing of their, their feet as representing something much more significant. Uh, it's an object lesson. It's, it's, a, it's a parable in action. And what does he want them to, to understand? Well, that they and you and I need to be cleansed. We, we need not the, the removal of you know, dirt from our feet. Uh, we need to be cleansed before the living God. We need to be uh, cleansed of our sin. Jesus wants them to understand as well. He says, if I don't wash you, 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 you have no share with me. If I do not wash you. He wants them to understand that only he can provide the cleansing that they need. The cleansing that we need is only coming, to, is only available to us through Christ. He wants them to, to understand, ultimately, although they don't understand it in this evening, that it's his death on the cross that will provide the cleansing that we all need. And over and around all of this, you know, John up in, in uh, verse 1, he said that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Other translations, uh, the, the, the Greek there is, uh, capable of being translated a couple of different ways. Some say, uh, translated this way, he showed them the full extent of his love. And we, we are not to mistake the full extent of his love as demonstrated in his washing of feet, but at the cross. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so he wants them, it's a parable, it's, it's an object lesson, that they need cleansing, that we need cleansing, and that he, he is the one who, who offers that. But also he does this to give them a powerful example of humble service. So I think you can go to the next slide. Both the washing, uh, you understand, he says, what I have done for you. Do you understand? I have given you, he says, an example. Both the washing of the feet and his death on the cross are scandalous examples, as, as uh, New Testament scholar G.A. Carson says, of the revered and exalted Messiah assuming the role of a despised servant for the good of others. And so both the foot washing and the cross are, are also examples of love. 
the full extent of God's love, God's love for us, and then also the kind of love he wants us to have for others. And so in verse 15, he's explicit. He says, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. I've given you an example. And so let's, let's take the few minutes that we have remaining and think about some ways that this might apply to us in terms of our own hearts and in terms of our own hands. Because just as Jesus' life and work was characterized by this kind of humility and this kind of humble service, he says he's left us an example. He wants our lives to be characterized by those things as well. And I think it could be said that, that humility, this kind of uh, love in action, this kind of being willing to, to lower myself for the good of others, is, is a distinctively Christian virtue. Humility was not unknown in the ancient world by any means, but it, it was not until the, the incarnation, the, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that humility began to be seen as a virtue uh, that, that we all ought to aspire to. It's, it is profoundly significant virtue for us as Christians. And so we need to think about this in terms of our own hearts and, and our own hands. Jesus, right, he, and we talked about this, he knows who he is. And so he says, you call me teacher and Lord. He accepts that. He, that's right. That is who I am. And, um, in, and Lord in, in a greater fullness than, than they even understood. Uh, Lord such that, that Paul will say that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He knew who he is. He accepts their, their identification. But that self-knowledge does not manifest itself in a spirit of pride. It does not uh, manifest itself in a, a spirit of self-glorification. Jesus is humble. He, he says that he is meek. He is lowly in heart. And so should we be. You probably, many of you, it's often attributed to C.S. Lewis, this, this uh, definition of humility. I, I don't think C.S. Lewis actually is responsible for the quote, but he gets all the credit. Um, humility is not thinking less of yourself, like, oh, I'm just such a worthless piece of garbage, I'm no good, I can't do anything. That's not, that's not humility, that's, that's arguably a reverse form of pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And that, that's my little addition. And of others more, right? Less focus on me and more um, on, on others. The humble in heart take the lower place. They take the lower place for the good of others. And, and the humble in heart are not threatened by the lower, the lower place. Just as Jesus was not threatened, and you think, well, why wasn't he threatened? He wasn't threatened by taking the lower place, by stripping off his clothes and getting down on his knees and washing these guys' feet. He wasn't threatened because he knew who he was. 
and his identity was not threatened by lowering himself to serve. And, and we can embrace that kind of humility because and when we know who we are, when we come to see ourselves, not because we're, we're worth all that, but when we come to see ourselves as beloved of God, that he loves us with an everlasting love, that he humbled himself for us. When you begin to find your security in that, then, then no act of service will be beneath you. Because your identity is not dependent on where you are in, in the pecking order. See, the opposite of, of this kind of humility is pride. And we need to think very carefully about that because the scripture says that God resists the proud. And in fact, the indispensable requirement for receiving the grace of God is humility. That God, he gives grace to who? The humble. Pride, we can be pride in so many different things. In our intellect, you think you're the smartest person in the room, in your achievements, what you got on the test, your performance, your position, what clubs you get into. I mean, all of these things. You can be proud in your spirituality. You can be uh, proud in your own sense of your own righteousness. And, and all of that pride is so often the water that we swim in, and, it, and it, it manifests itself in our hearts with what are the things that plague us with, with worry, with anxiety, and with um, uh, fear of what others think of me, and being lazy or being a workaholic, um, with, with being very thin-skinned if somebody criticizes me. Uh, with gossiping about others to make myself feel better about myself, with, with clinging to my rights. See, pride manifests itself in, in a spirit of rivalry and jealousy and difficulty receiving criticism. I mean, ask yourself, how do you respond? How do you respond when you're overlooked? How do you respond to criticism? How do you feel about taking the lowest place? How do you feel when others have success where you don't? Jesus says, I left you an example. He wants us to turn away from that kind of prideful heart and to grow in a spirit of humility like his. And if you say, well, that's great, Bill, but how do I do that? I think he gives us the key that when we find our identity, not in those things, but in a deep awareness of ourselves as God's unworthy, beloved children, as recipients of grace. Yeah, I mean, if I really embrace the reality that the, the God of the universe, the creator, the judge of all, the redeemer of all, that that God loves me and calls me his beloved. Who can hurt me? What can others do to me? I don't need anyone else to think I am great because God loves me. And then when I, when I you know, grasp so further that, that Jesus came to this earth to serve me, you, 
the greatest example being his work on the cross. He says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And, and what does that mean? I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life for many, and I'm one of them. Jesus loves us and gave himself for us. And, and so his, his call to us to embrace this mindset of service is grounded in the fact that he humbled himself for us, gave his life for us, came to serve us, loves us. And that transforms our heart when our identity is, is, is changed in that way. Which leads finally to the impact on, on our hands. Jesus ends this teaching uh, there in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not enough to know all of this. Jesus says, no, you, now you need to put that in action in, in humble service of others. And, you know, if we ask, well, what, what might that look like? Uh, it's, it's, it's in a way, it's impossible to answer that. That would be like saying, what does it look like to love my neighbor as, as yourself? It, it's impossible because the, the possibilities of how you can do that are, are virtually infinite. Jesus washing his disciples' feet is just an example, though, that I think is a valuable one because it points us not only to what we might think of as heroic acts of service, but ordinary, mundane acts of service. I mean, is it, is it possible in God's eyes that small and perhaps even unrecognized acts of humble service are as significant as grandiose ones? To leave the table to help in the kitchen, to arrive early at a meeting to help set up the chairs, or stay late to put things away. To, to hold your umbrella over a person without one, even if that means you get wet. That's what a servant does. The humble servant is always looking for ways to help others, not only to help important people, or people who can do something for us, but the least of these, to make them comfortable, to show them compassion, to alleviate their suffering to do them good, to lift them up. Associating with the lowly. Embracing the call to humble service might be as small and as quiet as cleaning up after your roommate some of the messes that they leave, or helping your parent fix dinner, or cleaning the bathroom without being asked and without any fanfare, without any grumbling. When we come to embrace the servant mindset as fundamental to our identity as followers of Christ, we become people who are always have our eyes lifted up. We're always alert to the ways that we can serve others. And yes, that includes opportunities through uh, places like the Pace Center. Uh, I, 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 I love that. I affirm that. But it goes beyond that. Jesus calls us to embrace the servant spirit all of the time, not just for a few hours a week. I did my service thing, now it's about me. And it might also mean lifting up your eyes beyond this community to the world. We saw the, the summer internship possibility with refugees. 
Where are Christians suffering? Where are Christians uh, in, in need of help? How might you be involved in that? And for some of you, this concept of humble service then becomes instrumental in your thinking about what is your calling? What is your vocation in the world? How will you work this out? And, you know, for some of you, it might mean you're going to undergo the rigorous training to become a medical doctor, not as a path to riches and respect, but because you want to alleviate suffering. You want to help the needy. I think of uh, Carl and Sally LaRue. Some of you may remember their names. They've been here to speak uh, on more than one occasion. Uh, from South Africa, they trained to be doctors in Cape Town. And then, according to their own peers, they committed professional suicide. Why? Because they left the prestige of the city to practice medicine among the poorest of the poor in a rural hospital in Zizueli. Uh, just last week, Debbie and I were with Tim and Cindy Zalker, who were former PCF staff members. Some of you know who they are. Emily knows who they are. Um, Cindy works and ministers among women who are being trafficked and sex workers in inner city Providence. Tim works to establish churches among the most neglected members of our society. The possibilities of humble service, if we will open our hearts and lift up our eyes, they are, they are endless. Jesus has left us an example. Jesus has loved us with an everlasting love. And, you know, as we close, where do you see yourself in all of this? You find that if you're honest, you identify more with the disciples and their hunger for prestige, for prominence. Are you willing to begin to embrace the upside-down mindset of a humble servant of Christ? As we close this prayer, I condense this. Some of you may have seen this prayer for humility. Um, I, every line in the, the original prayer ends with deliver me, Jesus. But let me just say this prayer as we close. Oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear us tonight. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver us, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver us. From the desire of being extolled, of being honored, of being praised, of being preferred to others, of being consulted, of being approved. Deliver us, Lord, from the fear of being humiliated, the fear of being despised, the fear of suffering rebuke, the fear of being calumniated, of being forgotten, of being ridiculed, of being wronged, of being suspected, deliver us, Lord. Oh, create in us a clean heart, create in us a pure and humble heart, a meek and lowly heart like our Savior. Thank you that he has loved us with an everlasting love, and may we go forth and love and serve those around us, secure in his love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.